The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Hi, thanks for joining us today. We're going to be doing a best of episode today where we replay some of the interviews we've done over the last couple of months that are indicative of the kind of people that are getting things done here and also providing some lessons for those of us that aspire to do great things here in the region. Our first guest is Dan Silverman, and we're going to talk with him about how his website really captures the grist of the D.C. neighborhoods. Well, our second guest is David Setlin. He is somebody who became an entrepreneur almost by accident. It's a great story. And speaking of stories, Alan Gannett is our third guest. We're going to talk with them about how entrepreneurs get through significant personal challenges and hardship. That's what we got for you in this best of episode. One of the promises of the internet was the idea of citizen journalists or community sites that would connect us all with the things going on in our community. Now, as things have developed, there have been places where that's occurred, and one of those places is here in Washington, D.C. We're going to talk about Popville with its founder, Dan Silverman. Popville, uh, you know, cool name. How'd you start this business? Where'd that come from? <laughs> it started like... Some good businesses start on a lark. <laughs> I moved to this neighborhood uh, called Petworth back in 2003, early 2003. And this was a time in D.C. when many uh, neighborhoods um, were changing pretty rapidly as new metro stations were opening. And I moved to this area that I had never heard of. None of my friends at work had heard of. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to start a website about Petworth. And then... I used to have this funny answer back when we had answering machines saying that I was the Prince of Petworth. I said, oh, Prince of Petworth, that's a good name for a site. So that's how the site came. And then it abbreviated to Pop and then Popville. <laughs> and when I go to the site and I look at it, you've got this amazingly comprehensive coverage of D.C. on a neighborhood-by-neighborhood -neighborhood basis. Is that really the sort of ununderstood or unspoken reality of our of our town? Is it the deep the deep tapestry of all these neighborhoods. Exactly. I mean, Washington, D.C. is is misunderstood by people who don't live in Washington, D.C. They Many people try to present it as the Capitol building, politics, the swamp, if you will, when that is maybe like 5% of Washington, when the beauty of Washington is exactly the tapestry of the neighborhoods. And the neighborhoods are constantly changing and evolving and there's good things about the neighborhoods there's bad things about the neighborhoods but you know it's like life and so i wanted to create a site that that shows dc for really what it is the good and the bad mm -hmm. and so that's why every day you know we're talking about a million different things that affect people who live in the city or work in the city and i use the word eclectic um and you can correct me in a moment when i look at the site uh I look at it from the context of, you know, an ordinary media controlled or, or something that's run in sort of the normal paradigm, the very clear editorial control, very clear messaging. But your site, it, it captures to my mind the grist of a neighborhood. It literally, I was struck by things like, hey, there was rumbling last night in my neighborhood. What's that about? Or, or hey, uh, anybody see this car accident? Or 
this bar that we all love is closing yeah. or there's something new coming up. It's an interesting mix. And how did that happen? Well, it's a really good question. And it's what today makes the site so successful because any, and it's amazing to me still to this day, anytime anything unusual happens, I'll get 10 emails, 15 tweets, you know, all these social media messages, people coming to me saying, what in the hell is going on? And it's not because Dan Silverman knows exactly what's going on. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But it's because I've created this super large community and somebody within the community knows the answer like 95% of the time. And so what I've done is I've sort of cultivated this community where I've tried to like weed out the trolls and weed out people who poison um, a community space. And, you know, one can't be 100% successful uh, in that regard, but I do the best that I can. So anyway, at this point, you know, there's 300,000 people uh, reading the site every month. And they are religious readers. You know, these are not people that, oh, this this viral uh, post went on and they watch it once uh, and then forget about it. I mean, these folks come on every single day, 10 times a day. Um, and so in the beginning, it just took time. And what I did was I sort of focused on what was of interest to me. That was my whole sort of threshold for what I was going to post about. I didn't post, you know, you, I talked to competitors and, and this, that, and the other, and they say, wow, you know, you post about a panda bear and you're going to get this many views and this many. I go, I love panda bears. You know, I love pets. You know, my competitors are like, this guy, he does the, ad I have a pet, an animal face, because I love pets. Right. You know, I have had pets my whole life. And so it's genuine. And I think the content, if it's genuine, like people know if it's genuine or not if you force it if you do something just for page views like people will see through that right away and then not so to answer your true. question i started it based on what i loved and then other people loved it and it just resonated isn't it a huge responsibility though to have a a site where you're accountable for the veracity of everything you write it's 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 a tremendous responsibility and what i decided very early on was that you're not going to be 100% successful. And so, you know, for example, if you post what I call scuttlebutt rumors and it turns out not to be true, you immediately correct that. And you don't represent yourself as saying, I'm preaching the gospel right now. I say right away, I used to work in defense, homeland security consulting. So we always used to talk about scuttlebutt, you know, mm -hmm. just from the old Navy guys. And so I've, I've always used scuttlebutt. And I will say straight away in a post, this is scuttlebutt. You know, take it with a grain of salt. And I've been very lucky in that, you know, well over 75% of my scuttlebutt is true. And so people know, okay, scuttlebutt from Dan Silverman versus scuttlebutt from Joe down the street is very different. But there is a responsibility. And how do I handle it? You got to correct your errors. Do you see yourself as a journalist or a community leader or, or something else? Definitely a hybrid. Um, because... You know, what I do, eclectic, uh, your word, it kind of fits it quite nicely. I mean, I walk down the street and I see some pretty flowers, you know, and I post, hey, these are pretty flowers, or this is a pretty stained glass, or this is a nice, uh, nice new architecture. Now, a proper journalist, he'll find out who is the architect, you know, what plans were filed, this, that, and the other. 
What I do is I, I look for what's of interest and then I throw it out there. I get the community response. Half of them know what's going on. They go, oh, that's a uh, Perkins Eastman building and yada, yada, yada. Um, so, you know, for me, I kind of think of myself as like, as like a facilitator, you know, like this guy who's, who's just, who's there to, to make a, make a space for people to talk about things that are of interest to me and to talk about things that are, are of interest to them and sort of weed out the nonsense. And, you know, sometimes it's more interesting to some people. Sometimes it's only interesting to me. Sometimes it's interesting to everybody. It's a mix. And you figured out how to make a business out of that. I did. It was very lucky. So in September 2009, uh, I made this my full-time job. I will tell you what, Dan, I've loved this conversation. And, and for somebody who's been involved as a technology investor for many years, from the beginning of the internet, it's so terrific to see something actually realized on the promise that we all hoped for. Yeah, I mean, I consider myself very lucky. I mean, of course, there's a lot of tremendous amount of hard work. People used to joke with me, say, oh, you know, you're going to sleep until noon now and work a couple hours a day. As you know, uh, I've never worked harder. And people who own their own business never work harder because everything rests on your shoulders, rests with you. Um, and so I just kind of thrive on it because I'm a very competitive person. And so, you know, it just sort of feeds me. People are like, well, how can you do this year after year after year? I mean, every day I wake up and I want to be the best. Every day I wake up, I want to have the most interesting site in D.C. Dan Silverman, it was great having you on the show. Thanks very much. It's been fun. And a thank you to our sponsor, JLL. JLL is the leading commercial real estate service company within the Washington, D.C. metro area, serving the technology, government, contracting, and professional services industries. JLL's strategy-led approach and expert implementation results in cost-effective and flexible real estate solutions that help their clients succeed and grow. As I go around the region, one thing that strikes me is how few people know what a dynamic place this is to start a life science business. A lot of the things that we are now taking for granted from the standpoint of healthcare and life extension are happening and were developed right here in our region. Indicative of that is our next guest, David Setlin. He is the founder of Mach V Solutions, a startup that's doing it the old fashioned way, growing through revenue. I love stories like that, and I'm happy to have you here to share it. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm proud to be here. Well, your local boy made good, and uh, yes. we love stories like that. Very true. So I grew up in uh, Montgomery County, uh, went to school, um, Cabin John uh, Middle School, then uh, Churchill High School, went to University of Maryland, got a master's degree at Hopkins and Shady Grove. Uh, worked for a biotech called Human Genome Sciences right up in the uh, Gaithersburg area. And uh, it's like you said, it's a great place to start up a biotech. Um, and, you know, it's funny because when you're in the biotech community, it's it's self-evident. There's there's a bunch of big firms. There's a bunch of little firms. But I guess for for the everyday uh, commuter around here, it's not as clear. The federal government really has a shadow over some of the, the uh, lesser industries like the biotech industry. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a powerhouse. I mean, we draw resources from the universities, the federal agencies like the NIH, 
um, a lot of tech transfer out of those types of labs that spin into these companies and, you know, like uh, MedImmune to name one, um, GlaxoSmithKline. Um, but there's also a lot of startup too, N- not so much the scale of like a San Francisco, but I think that's the goal of some people in this region to sort of bring up the area to, to be like a major cluster. Which, you know, when we look at the national economy, San Diego, San Francisco, Bay Area and San Diego and up New Jersey, Princeton, these are the other parts of the country where biotechnology is as important and maybe more important than software or other technology areas. When you say biotechnology, David, what do you what do you mean by that? Oh, it's a good question. So um, a lot of people don't don't clearly distinguish between uh, pharmaceutical companies like like a Johnson and Johnson and a biotech company like a Genentech. And the major difference is a biotech company utilizes um, cells, cells to produce uh, the therapeutic. So um, if anyone's seen Jurassic Park, remember that whole uh, cartoon where they take you through the cloning process and um, they're expressing these these uh, these genes. Um, they've engineered these cells to, to express these genes synthetically. And that's what a biotech company does. It, it harnesses the power of cloning to express a therapeutic from a live cell. And a pharmaceutical company, uh, for the most part, just synthesizes chemicals that have a therapeutic value. So uh, just to drive it home, the biotech is, is, a, is a live organism-based process, and the pharmaceutical company is a synthetic chemical-based process. And to put it in perspective for folks that maybe don't follow us as closely, most of the cutting-edge discoveries that people are excited about these days with respect to, say, cancer therapeutics mm-hmm. or other, other earth-shaking things, that is out of biotechnology. It's the ability to manipulate things on a cellular level, right? Absolutely. That's where the excitement is. I mean... I'm sure there's exciting things going on in the pharmaceutical world, too. Um, So that's nothing to to sneeze at. But, yeah, the biotech uh, world is kind of where the where all the energy and the, you know, the hot spot, I think. So we have this incredibly cutting edge and interesting and important industry in our midst. You mentioned MedImmune and GlaxoSmithKline Mm -hmm. and and others that are here. How does somebody like yourself get the entrepreneurial Itch. How did you decide to to start Mach V Solutions? Well, first of all, what do you do? Like, yeah, let's, let's that's right. <laughs> okay, so I have to take everyone into the weeds a little bit, but um, I'll, I'll relate this in the best way I can. So, if you if anyone's ever been to a brewery, right, you see these these large stainless steel uh, tanks, and the yeast cells, live cells, are growing in these tanks, producing the ethanol that turns into beer. And if you ever walk into a biotech plant, which we have around here. Um, it's the same exact equipment, just on a larger scale. And instead of uh, yeast fermenting alcohol, you have mammalian cells producing these therapeutic proteins. So it was my job before I started my company to purify these therapeutics from this cell culture goop that had the, uh, the smell, the characteristics of really of beer. Uh, so we use filters, other components called, uh, it's called chromatography. It's just a means of separating out one thing from another based on physical size, the charge, you know, not to get too much into the chemistry, but so it was my job to figure out ways of um, separating out our product from impurities. One impurity that's a major international concern is viral contamination, as you can imagine. 
So the way most because if a virus is introduced, it would make somebody sicker, absolutely, instead of healthier from the therapy, absolutely. Okay. And so if there's any detection that a plant has a viral contamination, the FDA comes in and shuts it down. And this happens if you Google. I don't want to throw out names because I don't want to throw any companies under the bus, but it it happens. You can you can Google cases of this in the past. So in order to please the regulatory agencies, uh, the industry has to spike into their process live virus to demonstrate that these filters can remove large amounts of it should there be a contamination (laughs) yeah yeah talk about playing with fire you better be good at it well it's done on a small scale so yeah and your technology allows the companies to do it in a different way without introducing the virus exactly we we use a non-infectious particle that mimics the characteristics of the live virus when you cut through it all you sound to me exactly like software entrepreneurs I've known, people who have started dry cleaners or restaurants, it sounds to me like you were in an industry, you saw a problem, you had an aha moment. Is yeah, that right? Absolutely. I, I actually, I didn't set out to start a company. I thought that I'd be able to Google search, you know, non-infectious viral particles and order something to my lab so I could use it. And after I realized it didn't exist, you know, that's when a couple, you know, nights of watching Shark Tank really just, you know, <laughs> made me realize I should go out and do this on my own. Yeah. So if you were going to give a message to listeners who are thinking about taking an entrepreneurial journey, what would you describe uh, as the most exciting thing about it for you so far? Um, the, the, the different skill sets that you have to pick up along the way to be even, you know, have a chance of success. The, you know, like I was, I had one skill set and that was, you know, in the lab uh, doing purification and I had to pick up, um, just from the sheer necessity, I had to pick up accounting, uh, marketing, sales, production, all these skills that I can apply to my next phase in life. If Whether this succeeds or not, who knows? But I, I think in the end, I'll have developed other skill sets that can be applied. That was David Saitlin, <laughs> founder of Mach V Solutions. Thanks, David. Thank you. And a thank you to our sponsor, Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation. Their business development team can help you find the best talent, an ideal location, and the latest in market and business intelligence so you can do business successfully in the greater Washington region and Montgomery County. Your business success starts with MCEDC. Connect with them at thinkmoco.com. Thank you to our sponsor, Tedco. Tedco invests in early stage tech and life science companies. It provides resources and connections that companies need to thrive in Maryland. Tedco's mission is to discover, invest in, and help build great companies. Learn more at www.tedco.md. time as I go through my life as an entrepreneur, I'll reach a crossover moment where I'll realize that I'm thinking about my life for challenges in a particular way. I had an opportunity to talk recently with Alan Gannett, our next guest, who's founder of TrackMaven. I'm sure you've heard of Alan. His startup's grown like crazy, but Alan and I have known each other a while, and today we're going to have a conversation about do entrepreneurs really deal with crises in their lives or change differently from non-entrepreneurs? And Alan, it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Thanks for taking the time to do it. Thanks for having me. You know, I've been through a divorce. I know you're in the process right now dealing with that. And, and I've had other things happen in my life along the way. And it, it struck me that when you face personal crisis and you have a brain that's wired up to be entrepreneurial and sort of fail into success, 
at least I find I, I dealt with crisis differently from other people. And I just wonder, is, am I the only one or is this something that you've seen in your own life or you see in other entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think you see it over and over again. I mean, the, the big thing that you see is that as entrepreneurs, we try and rationalize and put everything within some sort of system that we can control. And in our work lives, this is very effective. It makes us very good operators, it makes us good managers, it makes us good salespeople because we think about everything as a system. The issue is that when we try and approach that in our emotional lives, all of a sudden what happens is there's a sort of weird disconnect because you can't fully control your emotions. You can't fully control other people. You can't actually do these things. And so I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's very confusing. It's very weird. You know, you hear these stories about Elon Musk and his multiple marriages and how he would deal with his wives and ex-wives. And you could sense that there's a sense of like trying to rationalize or systemize something that isn't necessarily rational or isn't necessarily systematic. It's very human. I don't think I've ever met somebody entrepreneurial who doesn't believe at his or her core that they can manipulate the universe they're bidding. Yeah. But yet the journey of life is full of random things that just happen that you have to deal with. So it seems to me there are two types of entrepreneurs. There's one that literally is so rigid, they deny the possibility of change. And when change occurs or emotion occurs, they just jam it down and ignore it. And then the other half that I think sort of find ways to take these tragedies and fail upward. Yeah, so I definitely have gone through, so the, the company is about five and a half years old. And I definitely look at early on in my personal life and also in my work life, when things were really bad or stressful, I definitely was a compartmentalizer, definitely push things down and just not deal with them. I think the issue is what you learn over time is that that doesn't go away. It's still there. It's still percolating. It's still, you know, the soda bottle shaking up and getting fizzy. And at some point, it's going to catch up with you. And so you have the last sort of year and a half, you've had a bunch of experiences, whether it's getting divorced, whether it's uh, my biggest investor, Harry Weller from NEA, died suddenly. And I've been really conscious about trying to just experience it and trying just to, you know, think and feel out loud, both to myself, both with friends. And that's been an incredibly nerve wracking experience at times, but also very rewarding and enriching because what you find is that when you sit on these emotions and you let them ride, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about what you can handle, what you can't handle, and also makes it all a lot less scary. That doesn't happen when you push it away, when you push it down, when you don't think about it. it just sort of sits there, you know, waiting for you to get tripped up, waiting for you to have another stressful moment. You know what I think is very funny about what you just described is that I've never met an entrepreneur who wasn't really empathetic when they came to their own customers because you have to understand your customers to succeed. But it almost sounds like a lot of entrepreneurs aren't empathetic about themselves. 100%. I think as entrepreneurs, you know, we have, I think it was Walter Isaacson wrote about how Steve Jobs said that reality distortion field, this sort of perpetual optimism, this sort of, you know, we are destined to figure this out, destined to be successful. And as a result, when you experience failure or hardship or any of these things, I think you're incredibly rough on yourself because the reason why a lot of entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs is they feel some desire, oftentimes I think unhealthy, there's some desire to push themselves to an extreme level of excellence or success. And they are very, very, very rough on themselves when they don't achieve that. 
And I think that's the problem you see a lot of entrepreneurs face as, as they necessarily become successful, they're never satisfied. And in our culture, we look up to this in some ways, or we say like, wow, that person keeps pushing and they're going to do better and better and better. But there's also an inherent sadness in that, right? They're never able to just sit still. They're never able to just say, I'm enough. It's interesting to me because when I think about my own journey, uh, it wasn't until I went through a couple of experiences, the death of a parent and, and a divorce and, and the aftermath, that I realized that if you weren't taking care of your knitting, if you didn't have strong relationships with people around you, the rest of it was just nonsensical and didn't mean anything. Totally. And I mean, it, it was it was amazing to see, you know, I think after Harry died, it was amazing to see, you know, at his service or any of these sort of moments of reflection, how many people he had a positive impact on. And it was a very shocking experience actually to see that, you know, I have this sort of visual in my head of his memorial service. And there was hundreds of people packed in this gymnasium. And this was a guy who had an immense impact on humanity, right? He supported entrepreneurs, he mentored people, he gave them resources, he was always helping people. And I think on one level, you can view that all as highly transactional, but what that really reinforced to me was that this is actually a very human thing. This is actually a very relationship-driven thing. And it made me much more appreciative because it made me realize that this was someone who really cared about me and I hadn't done a great job, I think, while he was alive of appreciating him and you know, being vocal about that. And so going through that experience has since made me, I think, a much more appreciative friend, a much more appreciative CEO, much more appreciative investee, because I understand that like people are putting a little bit of themselves into me and my company. I think that people don't spend enough time really focusing on this and asking themselves the question, why am I getting up every day? Why am I doing this for? Or to more point, what's my legacy going to be? Totally. Right? Is that so? Ultimately, is our lesson for the entrepreneurs and business people listening? What What, what do you think the big life lesson is for them? For them? I think I think the big life lesson is to remember your own humanity and to you know be gentle to yourself, to realize that you are going to go through hard times and to experience those. Because I don't just think that that makes you a better person, a better friend, a better father, any of those things. I think it actually also makes you a better leader because all the people you work with, they all experience those things too. And I've definitely found over the last year and a half, my empathy levels have gone way up. And when people go through struggles, I know what those feelings feel like. I know what those emotions feel like. I think experiencing hardships or failure make you understand what that feels like for that other person. And you can't just be a fair weather coach if you're a leader, right? You have to coach people through the hard times. really think it's wonderful that you took the time today to, to share with folks out in the trenches how to be better in touch themselves and how to be more successful in a real way. And thanks for doing that. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you for joining us on What's Working in Washington. A special thank you to our sponsors, Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation, JLL, and Ted Co. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two D.C. region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. Tweet us at, at What's Working DC and tell us what you think of the show. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.